0: Well, it's also a thing we use in toilets. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zlokoski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elstrom. He was a career naval officer who had risen to the ranks of the U.S. Navy to become the architect of victory against the Japanese in the Pacific. He was a pioneer in submarine operations and eventually commanded the largest naval force in history. But before all of that, he was a small-town boy from the Texas hill country whose grandfather instilled in him a love of the sea. This week, we talk about one of the legends of Texas, Chester Nimitz. But first, what's your favorite small-town
1: fair or carnival in Texas? Well, I'll go first. Uh, my favorite is the... City of Orange Lions Club Carnival, uh, which is every uh, September. And uh, my wife has been going since she was a little girl. Her dad's in the Lions Club. Her grandfather was in the Lions Club. And they run uh, some spin-a-rooney machine uh, (laughs) that that they're maintaining, that they run and maintain. We go every year, and it's a lot of fun. This year, uh, they had a stand that had some boudin, and it was delicious. So there you go. Southeast Texas for you. (laughs)
2: Well, I'm going to go with the Great Texas Mosquito Festival, in Clute, Texas. Um, I think I've used that as an answer to another question before, but it's just so great. Um, It's got a much bigger feel than any small town festival that I've ever been to. Uh, They work really hard to put that on every year, and it's
0: definitely my favorite. Uh, I'm going to say the Potato Festival from Pearsall, Texas, even though Pearsall is technically the peanut capital of Texas. One of them. The peanut capital of Texas. And, uh, yeah, no, it was a fun fair, and I remember doing that uh, in junior high. And Junior high high is a great time to eat funnel cakes without guilt. (laughs) I think any time is a good time to eat funnel cakes without guilt. Because Mm -hmm. funnel cake. Because Because funnel cake. Oh, there's there's the t-shirt, folks. Because funnel cake. (laughs) In the town of Fredericksburg, located in the hill country northwest of San Antonio... One can find shops, beer gardens, wineries, and restaurants. But you'll also find two definite oddities right in the middle of town. One is a strange building called the Old Nimitz Hotel, which has a prominent three-story frame edition shaped like the pilot house of a 19th century steamship. Even more oddly, behind the Nimitz Hotel is a large and modern museum, the National Museum of the Pacific War. So how did a hotel shaped like a steamship and a museum to the Pacific Theater of the Second World War wind up in a Texas German town 300 miles from the ocean? The answer is in the story of the hotel's namesake, Charles H. Nimitz, and
1: his even more famous grandson,
0: Admiral Chester W. Nimitz.
1: Charles Henry Nimitz was born Karl Heinrich Nimitz in the great shipping town of Bremen in northern Germany in 1826. Carl's father, Carl Sr., was a merchant sailor, and young Carl followed in his father's footsteps at the age of 14. The Nimitz family immigrated to South Carolina in 1840, and Carl Jr. followed in 1844. He'd become fascinated by stories in his travels about Texas and the new German colonies being set up there by John Musbach's Alderswein Company. He traveled to Texas in 1846 befriending Musbach and settling in the town of Fredericksburg. He Americanized his name to Charles Henry. There, he worked as a bookkeeper and in the 1850s became a Texas Ranger. Later, during the Civil War, he was one of the relatively few Germans to serve in the Confederate Army. And many years later, he served as a Texas legislator. I'm just
0: going to say that hearing you say Carl so many times just made me think of, (laughs) do you know why they invited the mushroom to the party, Carl? (laughs) (laughs) Because he's a a fun fun guy. guy. A fun guy, Carl! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to the walking dead fans
1: yes i don't know what carl!
0: You mean. yeah okay. carl jokes anyway uh, in 1852
2: nimitz built a hotel in fredericksburg and owing to his love of the sea built the famous frame edition that made the hotel look like the prow of a ship locals dubbed nimitz hotel the steamboat hotel and it became a popular destination Given the variety of needs that existed at the time, the hotel also had its own saloon and brewery, a ballroom theater, a smokehouse, and a bathhouse. In addition to running this business, Captain Nimitz raised a family. He and his wife, Sophie, had 12 children, nine of whom lived to adulthood. Despite the remarkable life that Charles Henry lived, he would be eclipsed by one of his grandchildren, for whom he became a beloved mentor and
0: father figure. Chester Nimitz was born on February 24, 1885, the only child of Chester Sr. and Anna Nimitz. Chester, a frail romantic man, died six months before his own son was even born. Charles Henry and Sophie took in their widowed daughter-in-law and grandchild, and the captain became a significant influence on the boy. Chester later said his grandfather taught him, The sea, like life itself, is a stern taskmaster. The best way to get along with either is to learn all you can, then do your best and don't worry, especially about things over which you have no control. Anna later married another brother of her late husband, William, and they moved to nearby Kerrville, but young Chester remained devoted to his grandfather, who died in 1911
1: and loved his stories of the sea. As a teenager, Nimitz did well in school and he wanted to go to college, but opportunities were limited he applied to West Point in hopes of becoming an Army officer. He wrote to his congressman, James L. Sladen, who told him that there were no appointments available for West Point, but that there was one spot he could appoint for the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. Sladen told Nimitz that he would give the appointment to the most qualified candidate. Nimitz spent extra time studying to earn the appointment, and in 1901 he was appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy. Nimitz graduated with distinction in the class of 1905. Nimitz's first assignment was to
2: the Battleship Ohio for a cruise to the Far East, and in 1906, he transferred to the cruiser USS Baltimore. He did two years at sea as a warrant officer before receiving his formal commission as an ensign. He continued to serve in the Pacific, serving on the gunship Panay, the cruiser Denver, and the destroyer Decatur. It was on the Decatur, in 1908, where Nimitz had an incident that nearly derailed his career. He was commanding the Decatur when it ran aground on a sandbar in the Philippines. The ship was pulled free the next day and Nimitz was court-martialed, found guilty of neglect of duty, and issued a letter of reprimand. Fortunately, the young officer never made the same mistake twice and his service record beyond that point was exemplary.
0: In 1909, Nimitz returned to the United States and transferred to the submarine service. It was as a subman that he would come to define the early part of his career eventually becoming regarded as an expert on submarine technology and tactics for the entire U.S. Navy. In May of that year, he was given command of the First Submarine Flotilla, commanding his own boat, the USS Plunger, the Navy's second submarine in service, and also most unfortunately named submarine. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, super, there's
2: some super creative there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What do <laughs> submarines do? They plunge. Call it the plunger. <laughs> the plunger. Yeah. Well, it's also a thing we use in toilets. Yeah. So <laughs> Submarine- maybe, maybe, maybe they called it that because it was only the second, and they knew they'd probably lose it. Yeah. So yeah. Let's not give it a, a
0: very entertaining name. <laughs> I don't oh, know. boy. Unfortunate name. Submarines were in their infancy at this time, and many of the tactics and operations were just being developed. Submarines were tiny, cramped, and dangerous,
1: but Nimitz excelled. In October 1911, Nimitz was assigned Commander 3rd Submarine Division Atlantic Torpedo Fleet in Connecticut and he assisted in fitting out the Navy's newest submarine, the USS Skipjack. The Skipjack was the first American sub to be fitted with diesel engines, and Nimitz became an expert on this new technology. While in command of 3rd Submarine Division, he received a silver life-saving medal for his actions in saving an enlisted sailor from drowning when that sailor was knocked overboard from a submarine tender. While serving in Connecticut, he also met and married Catherine Vance Freeman in April 1913. He and Catherine went on to have four children, three girls and a boy.
2: Nimitz commanded the Atlantic Submarine flotilla from May 1912 to March 1913 and then was assigned to supervise the building of diesel engines for the fleet oil tanker, MAUMI, the Navy's first diesel engine surface vessel, and later served as its executive officer. After the United States declared war on Germany in April 1917... Nimitz was on board the Maumee when it served as a refueling ship for the first squadron of U.S. Navy destroyers to cross the Atlantic to take part in the war. During the war, Nimitz became aide and then later chief of staff to the commander of submarine forces for the U.S. Atlantic Fleet, and he was assigned to the office of the Chief of Naval Operations, where he served as the head of the Board of Submarine Design.
0: After the war, having spent most of it in staff roles, now Commander Nimitz returned to sea, serving as executive officer of the battleship South Carolina. Through the late 1920s and 30s, he rotated between sea commissions and staff roles, serving in the Atlantic, West Coast, and the Philippines. In addition, from 1926 to 1931, he served as an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, with the task of establishing the Navy's first Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps unit. In June of 1927, while teaching at Berkeley, he was promoted to full captain. In 1938, he was promoted to rear admiral and commanded a battleship division before being appointed chief of
1: the Bureau of Navigation in 1939. Ten days after the disaster at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, Nimitz was promoted by President Roosevelt to Commander-in-Chief United States Pacific Fleet. He was advanced to the rank of full Admiral, four stars, skipping over Vice Admiral completely. Roosevelt picked Nimitz because of his reputation as a staff officer and his cool, level nature. He immediately departed for Hawaii and took command in a ceremony on top of the deck of the submarine USS Grayling. Normally, this change of command ceremony would have been aboard a battleship, but... Naturally, every battleship in Pearl Harbor had either been sunk or was severely damaged at the time. The unassuming, quiet Texan acted quickly to organize his forces and do what he could to stabilize the situation. Dimitz recognized that his most powerful remaining weapon were the aircraft
2: carriers. Under his command, small raids were launched against Japanese-held islands. He also ordered resources be made available to the daring Doolittle raid launched from the USS Hornet against Tokyo itself. These pinprick attacks, although they did little to damage Japan, stung the pride of the Japanese and helped morale both back home and on the front lines. More importantly, Admiral Nimitz was able to utilize superior intelligence from codebreaking, as well as unconventional tactics, to stop the Japanese advance at the battles of Coral Sea and Midway. Nimitz's strategic decisions led to key turning points in the war and enabled the Allies to shift from defensive to offensive
0: operations. From 1942 until late 1943, Nimitz shared responsibility in the Pacific with General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur commanded the southwest Pacific area, which was most of the war zone north of Australia and from New Guinea west to the China Sea. Nimitz commanded the vast Pacific Ocean areas from the South Pacific all the way to the Aleutians and from Hawaii to China. MacArthur and Nimitz began simultaneous campaigns along two axes towards Japan. Their strategy called for bypassing stronger Japanese bases and positions in favor of weaker ones where the strong positions would be left to wither on the vine. MacArthur's design was always to head towards the Philippines, while Nimitz favored moving through the island chains of the Central Pacific towards Japan itself. When the Marianas in the Central Pacific were captured, bases could be constructed for the new long-range B-29 bombers to take the war to Japan
1: itself. By late 1943, Nimitz's fleet had been reinforced with powerful new aircraft carriers, more effective aircraft, and dozens of new battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and auxiliary vessels, and he commanded thousands of soldiers and marines. The Japanese bases at Tarawa, Kwajalein, Saipan, and Guam, Uthuli, and Palau were all taken after hard fighting. At the Marianas, the U.S. Navy wiped out the last effective trained Japanese carrier force during what became known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. In mid-1944, Nimitz was convinced by MacArthur to combine commands in order to invade and retake the Philippines, and Nimitz's naval forces under Admiral William Halsey were involved in the Battle of Lady Gulf, the largest naval engagement in history, where the last of Japan's effective surface ships were destroyed. After the Philippines, Nimitz's forces captured Iwo Jima and Okinawa, islands that were considered part of Japan itself. By the summer of 1945, Nimitz and MacArthur were preparing for an invasion of the home islands of Japan, the largest invasion in history. The island-hopping campaign was important, but there was another campaign
2: that Nimitz was running at the same time. From the beginning of the war, American submarines had been active throughout the Pacific, trying to stem the tide of the Japanese advance. The attack on Pearl Harbor had left the Pacific Fleet's submarine force largely undamaged. Nimitz later said, quote, Our submarines were already operating against the enemy, the only units of the fleet that could come to grips with the Japanese for months to come. It was to the submarine force that I looked to carry the load until our great industrial activity could produce the weapons we so sorely needed to carry the war to the enemy.
0: However, from 1942 to 1943, a lack of aggression and cohesion of tactics, as well as faulty torpedoes on the subs themselves, made the American submarine force far from effective. A crash-building program of new submarines began arriving in late 1943 but something had to be done to make use of them. Nimitz appointed an old friend and fellow submariner, Charles Lockwood, to command the Pacific Fleet submarines. They weeded out bad captains, pushed the Navy to provide more effective torpedoes, and adopted new tactics modeled on those that had been used in the Atlantic by German U-boats
1: to aggressively take the fight to the Japanese. The campaign was hugely effective. Using Wolfpack tactics, squadrons of American submarines would devastate Japanese convoys. Long-range patrols would find and pick off Japanese merchant ships, while often ignoring warships other than aircraft carriers. Like England, Japan is an island nation entirely dependent on imported goods and raw materials for survival. Nimitz knew that aggressive tactics like the Germans used in the Atlantic would starve the Japanese war machine and its people. The Japanese, generally disdainful of escort duty for merchant ships, never really managed to modify their tactics to combat the American submarine menace. And within a few months in 1944, more than doubled the previous year's tonnage sunk. By the turn of the year, American submarines were even operating off the Japanese coast. Underwater warfare was especially dangerous, however.
2: The silent service, as it was called, had the highest casualty rate of any American force during the World War II, with a 22% casualty rate. This was never far from Nimitz's thoughts because his only son, Chet, was a submarine commander in the Pacific. He would finish the war with a navy cross, two silver stars, a bronze star, and a presidential citation for having sunk over 14,000 tons
0: of Japanese shipping during a single cruise. On December 19, 1944... As Nimitz's forces were preparing for the invasion of Iwo Jima, he was promoted to the rank of Fleet Admiral, five stars, the highest rank in the Navy. Nimitz was only outranked by four people in the entire U.S. military, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Admiral William Leahy, Admiral Chief of Staff George C. Marshall, Chief of Naval Operations Ernest King, and Douglas MacArthur. As the Allies closed in on Japan, Nimitz ordered carrier airstrikes and also increased bomber raids on the main islands and tightened the submarine blockade. He also ordered the United States Army Air Forces to mine the Japanese ports and waterways by air as part of Operation Starvation, which severely interrupted Japanese logistics. Ultimately, the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki brought the war against Japan to an abrupt halt in
1: 1945. On September 2, 1945, Nimitz and Halsey's vast third fleet sailed into Tokyo Bay to accept the Japanese surrender and began the occupation of Japan. Among the over 200 ships there was the battleship West Virginia, severely damaged four years before at Pearl Harbor. At the surrender ceremony aboard the battleship USS Missouri, Nimitz formally represented the United States of America and signed the instrument of surrender for his country, while MacArthur, as supreme commander, signed for the entire Allies. Shortly after the surrender, Nimitz returned home and was honored in Washington, D.C. on October 5, 1945, by President Truman. He was presented with a gold star for his third award of the Distinguished Service Medal, quote, for exceptionally meritorious service as Commander-in-Chief U.S. Pacific Fleet and Pacific Ocean areas, from June 1944 to August 1945.
2: After the war, Nimitz was nominated to replace Ernest King as Chief of Naval Operations. Nimitz accepted the position on the condition that he only served two years in the role. His task was a difficult one. He was responsible for ensuring that the most powerful navy in the history of the world was reduced to a fraction of its strength. He was also charged with ensuring that the vast fleet would be placed into mothballs so that it could be used for future conflicts, but at the same time making sure that the navy continued to advance technologically. Finally, the immediate concern of the Navy was to return the millions of servicemen from all over the world back to their homes.
0: One of Nimitz's most far-ranging decisions as CNO was, predictably, tied in with submarines. In 1947, he supported the efforts of a captain named Hyman Rickover in his efforts to push for the building of nuclear-powered submarines. Nimitz recognized the value of Rickover's proposal when others underneath him had not, and forwarded the proposal on to the Secretary of the Navy. This eventually led to the building of the very first nuclear-powered submarine, USS Nautilus. According to the Nimitz Museum in Fredericksburg, quote, Nimitz's greatest legacy as CNO is arguably his support of Admiral Hyman Rickover's effort to convert the submarine fleet from diesel to nuclear
1: propulsion. Interestingly enough, Nimitz took another unconventional action while serving as CNO. During the war crimes trial of German Admiral Karl Donitz, the head of Germany's U-boat force, Nimitz was asked to write an affidavit in support of the practice of unrestricted submarine warfare. This was to show that it was a valid military tactic and that Donitz wasn't committing war crimes. Nimitz himself had employed unrestricted submarine warfare to great effect against Japan. His affidavit is widely credited as a reason why Donitz was sentenced to only 10 years of imprisonment instead of to death.
2: On December 15, 1947, Nimitz retired from Office of Chief of Naval Operations. Since the rank of Fleet Admiral is a lifetime appointment, he remained on active duty for the rest of his life, with full pay and benefits. He and his wife, Catherine, moved to Berkeley, California. During his retirement, Nimitz served ceremonial posts for the government and was actively involved in veterans organizations. He also served as Regent of UC Berkeley. He died in San Francisco on February 20th, 1966, and was buried in Arlington National Cemetery alongside his close friends and subordinate admirals, Raymond Spruance, Charles Lockwood, and Richmond Turner. Since his death, Nimitz has been honored through the naming of roads, schools, military posts, buildings, landmarks, as well as several statues, including one at SeaWorld in San Antonio. There's also a statue of him located at Pearl Harbor. The Navy's second nuclear-powered aircraft carrier was named after Nimitz in 1975, and the entire class of 10 supercarriers was designated
0: the Nimitz class and remains in commission. The most important memorial to Nimitz, however, is in his hometown, right here in Texas. In 1968, his grandfather's hotel in Fredericksburg was designated a Texas landmark and was converted into a museum to honor Admiral Nimitz. Over the years, the museum expanded to cover more and more of the Pacific War, And in 2000, a new facility was built to house the National Museum of the Pacific War just behind the Steamboat House. Perhaps the most striking feature of the museum is the beautiful Garden of Peace, a gift given by the Japanese government to the museum in memory of Admiral Nimitz's efforts after the war to promote peace and reconciliation between the American and Japanese people. Today visitors can learn more about the extraordinary life of this great Texan by visiting this incredible museum. Yeah, I mean, so what else go. can you
2: say? Yeah, so <laughs> about go, well, Admiral Chester Nimitz. I mean, he's, you know, it's a huge national figure, huge world figure, and mm-hmm. he's from little old Fredericksburg in the middle of Texas. It's yeah. fun,
0: it's funny because was interesting story to me because my my mom's dad, H.R. Uh, Jerry Dabowski, um he served in the Navy during World War II. And he was uh, on an attack transport ship that was part of Halsey's fleet, mm-hmm. so he was in the Pacific, and he so his ship was the USS Cecil. For any uh, Navy geeks out there that want to look this stuff up, <laughs> um, which I'm glad because I have an Uncle Cecil, uh, and I'd much rather have an Uncle Cecil than an Uncle Plunger. Um, <laughs> but but uh, he, he actually. Um, he had a lot of stories of of being in the war and being in the navy and all that, but what was really interesting was uh, his fleet. He was there in Tokyo Harbor at the end at the signing. Like the Cecil was one of the ships that was right there, uh-huh. and he had just a, a, a interesting to see it from the the point of view of someone who was doing a lot of heavy lifting during the war, uh, and, and but uh, to to see the overall you know vision of this mind that laid out this attack plan. And to know that it's a Texan, that that just feels good.
2: Yeah. Now, would you rather have an uncle named Skipjack because that'll be pretty Skipjack's cool. <laughs> pretty sweet
0: name.
1: But uh, Plunger, no. <laughs> yeah, so I I actually have been to Fredericksburg and to the Museum of the uh, Pacific War, although I have not I have seen but not been into the new version of it. I I went when I was in high school and it was an older Version the, the steamboat house was still there. It was downtown, but a couple blocks away was another smaller building. But they had a PT boat, which is uh, famous. You know, John F. Kennedy uh, commanded a PT boat during the war, uh, and, and a lot of other uh, another other information and displays. And the garden was over there. Um, but now the museum is actually very beautiful. It's, it's right behind the steamboat house, just a just off of the downtown area in Fredericksburg. And um, I, I just I've, I've been a big you know, history buff for a long time. And Nimitz is just one of my favorite characters. He just has this reputation of being cool hand, cool guy, you know, this even keel laconic, very Texan, just can't be ruffled. And that was a big part of why he was put in command was that things were in such chaos and everything was just, everybody's was running around. Like their, their head was on fire because, you know, the Japanese were winning everywhere and, and, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor had been destroyed, and they needed someone in there that could just take firm grasp and just say, you know what? This is what we're doing. I'm in command. We're going to do this, and we're going to we're gonna beat the Japanese, and that's it. Yep. And uh, if you watch the movie Midway, which was a classic movie from the 70s uh, starring Charlton Heston and, and a, one of those cast-of-character's movies, uh, Henry Fonda plays Chester Nemitz and, and mm-hmm. nails the character perfectly. So, uh, yep. Definitely recommend you check that one out.
2: Yeah. Well, I always knew, I mean, since I was a child, I think my first exposure to the name Nimitz that I can recall was the wonderful movie uh, Final Countdown where the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier goes back in time to World War II. Oh, yeah. um, That's where Nimitz, I remember Nimitz for the first time that, but I didn't know for a long time after that that he was from Texas. So once I found that out, It's very cool. Um, Also interesting, of course, is that uh, General and then President Eisenhower was from Texas. So two very large figures in World War II both can call
1: Texas their Uh uh, hometown. And and actually Douglas MacArthur spent many years as a young man, as a soldier, and as a child – in texas in san
0: antonio yeah. so. plus plus we had we talked about the involvement of the military the whole birth of military aviation here in texas right. uh, as well as Patton's time that he spent
1: here in texas yep All right so but yeah chester chester nimitz is definitely the most uh the highest ranking true texan because eisenhower left pretty early but the the person who came from texas and and uh was a Texan he, he ra- rose to the highest rank of any commander and actually he does outrank Eisenhower so yep, technically he, yeah he does
2: so, so very, uh, very cool guy with a very cool name Chester
0: Nimitz well I think yeah. there's no better place than you can be from I mean the Texas Hill Country is a pretty <laughs> great place to say yeah. where are you from I'm from the Texas Hill Country and they'd be like oh you know good German stuck you're you know, promoted tough people Uh, no, it's a, it's a beautiful, but man, talk about like a beautiful area to visit. Like I know summer, you know, I know you're making your summer plans, but if you're looking for something to do and you find yourself in Texas, head to the hill country, visit that museum, uh, you know, and then stop off at the Texas show caves on the way down or the way back. Uh, you know,
1: we're chock full of vacation ideas here on, come and take it. By the way, uh, the USS Cecil. Is APA ninety six, and it indeed was at Tokyo Bay on the surrender of Japan. I'm not a liar, so there you go. <laughs> I posted a, a I posted a picture. Received two battle stars for World War II service. There you go. There you go. Well, Chester Nimitz, great man, and go to, yeah definitely go to Fredericksburg. Uh, don't just go for the wine and the, uh, the the vineyards and the beer and the shopping. Go go to get your taste of Texas history and. The shopping and, world and the wine history.
0: and the beer. Yeah, and all that stuff, too. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at BrainStaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to BrainStaple.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at
1: HistoryPodcasters.com.
0: Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java.
1: I'm Max Schaum with two N's.
0: And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell everyone you know, and go leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support our show financially, please go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.